Welcome to this latest episode in the Herbert Smith Freehills FDI Friday podcast series, in which our foreign direct investment regulation experts are sharing their insights into FDI regimes around the globe. I'm Ruth Allen, a professional support lawyer in our competition, regulation and trade practice here in London. And I'm joined today by Joe Falcone, a partner in our New York office who leads our CFIUS practice, and James Robinson, a corporate partner who supports Joe in that endeavour. In today's episode, we'll be looking at what investors need to know about the US FDI regime, often referred to as the CFIUS regime. The CFIUS regime is well established, but it's also regularly evolving. And I think it's fair to say that it's one of the FDI regimes that other jurisdictions with perhaps newer FDI regimes tend to look to when considering how to approach a particular issue. And it's also a pretty active regime, with CFIUS receiving 440 notifications in 2022. Joe, could you start us off by giving a brief description of how the CFIUS regime works, drawing out the key features that investors need to be aware of? Thank you, Ruth. CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, is the U.S. foreign direct investment regulator. It's what we call an interagency committee of the U.S. government, which means it's made up of cabinet level departments with national security, military and intelligence, infrastructure and international trade functions. Key examples being the departments of Treasury, which chairs it along with defense, justice, homeland security, commerce, uh, the State Department and the Energy Department along with several of the executive branch offices that advise the president in national security, intelligence, and economic areas. CFIUS has broad jurisdiction to review essentially three types of foreign investments into the U.S., which we describe as covered transactions, and it reviews them for their potential impact on U.S. national security. So first are controlling acquisitions of U.S. businesses by foreign, and here we mean non-U.S., companies or investors. And this has been the CFIUS mandate essentially since it was formed back in 1975. Second are certain non-controlling foreign minority investments in U.S. businesses. And the third are acquisitions by foreign persons of certain real estate located in close proximity to U.S. military installations, ports, and other sensitive facilities. The second and third areas were added to CFIUS's jurisdiction by federal CFIUS reform legislation that was enacted in 2018 and followed by implementing regulations that took effect in 2020. And another item I note here in respect of CFIUS jurisdiction is that it does not depend on deal value or turnover thresholds, which is a departure from merger control regimes as well as CFIUS frameworks in other jurisdictions. And my only practical note to add here on on what is classified as a covered transaction uh, is that when Joe talks about U.S. businesses, this covers not just targets that are solely U.S. based, um, but also non-U.S. targets that have U.S. operations, no matter how small they are in the U.S. So even if it's a billion dollar deal by a, a Japanese buyer acquiring a German company, and that German company has a small U.S. subsidiary generating only, say, a million in revenue, it's still within the scope of the CFIUS regime. So that's where the thresholds really aren't important. 
Thanks, James. And in terms of mandatory filing or, or voluntary filing, how does the CFIUS regime work there? Um, when will a mandatory notification will be required and when will investors need to potentially choose to voluntarily notify? Mandatory filing requirements for CFIUS took effect in 2018 and they are currently governed by 2020 CFIUS regulations which require a CFIUS filing where three factors are met. First, these 2020 regulations created a new category of U.S. business for regulatory purposes known as a TID U.S. business. Now, without getting too much into the details of the regulations, the TID of TID U.S. business refers to a U.S. business that for T, uh, is a business that designs, develops, or deals in certain controlled critical technologies. The I of TID business focuses on U.S. businesses that own, operate, or service facilities defined as covered investment critical infrastructure. And the D refers to sensitive personal data of U.S. citizens that is maintained or collected by the U.S. business at issue in the transaction. Uh, and just to add, we've seen in that last category of data, this means that a lot more transactions are having to be considered on unexpected sector deals, as it were. So, for example, in the retail space where you have customer loyalty programs collecting that kind of data, if it's of a certain size and certain category, then technically it triggers at least an explanation uh, to address the potential risk, even if it's not a real substantial uh, blockage to a deal. Right. That's absolutely right. And going on in the analysis, if we assume that there is a TID U.S. business in play, um, that's the threshold or the initial element of the mandatory CFIUS filing assessment. We then need to assess whether the transaction falls into one of two separate scenarios that trigger a mandatory filing. The first is where the foreign investment involves a TID U.S. business that produces, designs, tests, manufactures, fabricates, or develops one or more controlled critical technologies for which a U.S. regulatory authorization, meaning essentially a U.S. export control license, would be required to export the relevant critical technologies to any foreign person that's a party to the transaction. And for practical purposes, the focus here is not on whether the U.S. business currently exports um, or if such exports are contemplated post-completion. Rather, it requires you to do an assessment of whether the critical technology at issue would require a license were such exports to occur, even if they're not ongoing or, or even contemplated. The second scenario looks at whether this is a state-sponsored investment. In other words, would a foreign government secure a substantial interest in the TID US business by way of the transaction. So this arises where a foreign person will acquire a voting interest of 25% or more in the TID US business. And in turn, a foreign government holds a 49% or greater interest in the acquiring foreign person. And the mandatory filing analysis is critical since failure to file in a mandatory scenario can result in a fine of up to the deal value of the transaction. And from an M&A perspective, when it comes to documenting the transaction, um, while you can't contract away that fine, 
um, if it subsequently turns out that a mandatory filing was required, you can try and demonstrate to CFIUS that your mistake was honest <laughs> and you can allocate responsibility as between the parties uh, by having the seller rep and warrant that the US business is not a TID business, for example. Uh, or on the other hand, the seller could ask that the buyer rep and warrant that they're not foreign government controlled. So you'll see more CFIUS related diligence and rep and warranty provisions in deals, whether it's a mandatory filing for sure, or even if a mandatory filing is not ultimately made. Assuming the transaction doesn't require a mandatory CFIUS filing, the parties still need to consider the national security risk profile of the deal to determine whether a voluntary filing is nonetheless advisable in the interests of deal certainty. Where CFIUS reviews and clears a transaction, that transaction receives what we call safe harbor which means the transactions insulated, generally speaking, from further CFIUS review. But absent a CFIUS filing, review, and clearance, the committee retains the authority to investigate transactions and block or suspend pre-closing or unwind post-closing or impose mitigation conditions on transactions subject to its jurisdiction that, in the view of CFIUS, present national security risks. And there's no statute of limitations or regulatory end date on CFIUS's investigation and um, and call-in authority. So CFIUS continually monitors foreign acquisitions of and investments in U.S. businesses and is increasingly investigating non-filed transactions to assess, number one, whether they're covered transactions, number two, whether they trigger mandatory filing requirements or whether they present U.S. national security issues, and in some cases, CFIUS is in effect requiring the deal parties to make uh, pre- and even post-closing filings. So, in practical terms, from an M&A perspective, uh, even if no monetary filing is triggered, you do need to assess whether a voluntary is still merited. Even if ultimately there's not a problem, a substantial uh, national security problem on your deal, it may still be important, especially if you have certain technology, infrastructure, or personal data involved, where you know there's going to be greater scrutiny per se to address for deal certainty, as, as Joe mentioned. Um, it, it's better to plan and make a known timetabled voluntary filing where you're confident there's in fact no substantive issue, rather than press ahead and then have the deal forcibly paused prior to closing or even queried post-closing. Thanks. And in terms of the types of transactions that are most likely to attract scrutiny under the CFIUS regime, are there any trends that you're seeing in terms of the type of deals being reviewed? So, for example, particular sectors or particular types of investors or perhaps investment associated with particular countries? As a regulatory matter, CFIUS authority isn't limited by the sector in which the U.S. business operates, nor by the jurisdiction or nation of the foreign inquirer or investor. Yeah, and and this is a question we're often asked on deals. You know, is this type of a deal by a, a UK or a French or an Australian company um, with a target in the IT or retail or manufacturing or insert sector um, going to face real scrutiny? And as Joe says, the technical answer is it's possible for any sector. Um, though, as I'm sure you know, you've seen from the mandatory um, analysis, um, 
the as a practical matter, we can say that higher scrutiny is given to sector wise to foreign investments in US businesses in the TID category and geography wise in answer to your question. Yes, foreign investments in US businesses um, by investors from so-called countries of concern face higher scrutiny. And while CFIUS regulations don't have an express go, no go list, the reality is investors from China will receive heightened CFIUS scrutiny. So from an M&A perspective, it's useful to factor that in, even if you're not a Chinese company. Um, when you're a seller uh, comparing competing bidders, or even as a bidder where you're looking at other competing bidders um, who may be challenging your transaction, um, it's useful to know that, um, that the Chinese uh, investors will face higher scrutiny per se. And what about timing? How does the review process impact on the deal timetable in practice? Yeah, in practice, it can impact potentially quite substantially. But let me just step back and kind of review how the CFIUS filing process would unfold. So the primary means of notifying CFIUS of a transaction is what we term the joint voluntary notice, which is a joint filing of the deal parties. Now, despite its name, the joint voluntary notice can be and often is used to notify CFIUS of a transaction that triggers mandatory filing obligations. Um, note that in 2020, CFIUS imposed filing fees for the filing of a joint voluntary notice or JVN, which can range up to 300,000 US depending on the value of the transaction. Alternatively, for transactions with what we think to be a relatively low or lower U.S. national security risk profile, the parties may choose to file a shorter form declaration in lieu of the full notice, which we'll discuss below. But if we're filing a notice, the process and timings are generally as follows. First is a best practice and one that I think most CFIUS practitioners follow almost universally is for the parties to prepare and file a draft notice with CFIUS in advance of the filing of what we term the final or the formal notice. While it's a draft, it really is a complete filing with all the necessary exhibits and information included. It calls for a lot of information from both sides to the deal. It can take anywhere from a couple of weeks or even longer to prepare. CFIUS then reviews the draft filing and will provide the parties with comments generally within two weeks. And these comics can be very detailed. They can demand additional exhibits and information and inquire into further specifics of deal terms and rights post-completion. Um, once the parties uh, fully address the CFIUS comments, they'll file what we call the final notice. So once that's accepted and the filing fee is paid, the deal is what we term on the clock. And then we have uh, potentially three stages of the review. First is an initial 45-day review period. It really cannot be shortened or expedited. Um, CFIUS will pose several rounds of follow-up questions and requests for more information, uh, and the parties have to respond within three business days, which can be quite challenging in some cases. On day 45, CFIUS will either clear the transaction by issuing a formal closing letter, and we generally have a few days' notice of that or else the case moves to a second stage investigation period. The second stage 
can be a 45-day fact investigation period. Essentially, it's a continuation of the review. And the third stage uh, is a presidential review period uh, where CFIUS can't reach consensus on whether to clear the transaction. The transaction by regulation can be referred to the president for the decision, and the president has 15 days to uh, uh, make a decision in respect of whether to block or permit the transaction. In practice, it's extremely rare for the process to reach the presidential review stage, as most parties have withdrawn filings if clearance was not secured at the close of the investigation period, or else they've withdrawn and, and refiled. And I would just note at a practical level, these 45-day timings that I've noted, they're not aspirational. They are set by law. And while, in my experience, CFIUS often works right to the regulatory deadlines in the review, it will adhere to those timings. Um, but as noted, the parties sometimes will withdraw a deal from CFIUS review at the end of the second stage investigation with the approval of CFIUS to give the parties additional time to consider conditions or what we call mitigation remedies that CFIUS may require as a condition for clearance. So this refiling, in effect, restarts the clock. And based on some public anonymized information published by CFIUS, we know that, for example, in 2022, of the 286 notices filed to CFIUS, 88 of them were withdrawn generally at the end of the second stage investigation, with 68 of those notices being refiled and the others either uh, withdrawn because the parties chose not to accept mitigation terms proposed by CFIUS or else for um, commercial reasons. And I think, again, from an M&A perspective, it's important to factor this timetable into the closing timetable in the SPA not just as to the the long stop date of worst case scenario to obtain approval uh, but often which is more the party's practical concern what is the quickest route to close um, and you really do need to factor in not just the period of CFIUS review but as Joe says the, the period required to prepare the filing given the information that's required to be assembled by the parties. Now one way to try to speed up or accelerate the CFIUS process is by filing the shorter form declaration. And the advantages of the declarations are that they require less inf information than the notice. They're not subject to filing fees, and they enable the parties to receive clearance within a 30-day review window. Um, so at the conclusion of a 30-day review of the transaction, CFIUS has four ways to respond. It can clear the transaction outright, in which case that safe harbor protection attaches. It can request, and in practice, that means require the parties to file a full notice if it believes the transaction raises national security considerations that the declaration review is unable to resolve. It can give what they call the CFIUS shrug, where CFIUS neither clears the transaction nor requests a full notice. It just tells the parties it cannot reach a decision based on the declaration and the parties may file a JVN or CFIUS can initiate its own unilateral review. So to the extent the CFIUS response to a declaration is anything other than clearance, it's quite possible that the declaration process may in fact extend the timing of the overall review process. And thus you're adding another 30 to 
45 or more days onto the process and then still having to go through the notice review period. Thanks, Joe. We've talked about the CFIUS mandate in respect of US national security. How, if at all, is that defined in CFIUS regulations or how is national security interpreted by CFIUS? National security itself is not really defined in the CFIUS regulations um, and CFIUS has really very broad discretion uh, as to what constitutes a national security concern in its view. So when we're helping clients and deal lawyers assess national security profiles of a particular transaction, we start with the three factors that by regulation guide CFIUS when it's looking at the national security risk profile, and that is threat, vulnerability, and consequences. Threat refers to the intent and capability of the foreign person, the foreign investor, to take action that would impair or harm the uh, national security of the United States. As a practical matter, a transaction that James mentioned earlier that involves an investor from a country of concern is likely to receive a higher threat score than one where the acquirer is from a recognized US ally or partner nation or one of the five eyes countries. Vulnerability focuses on the US business and the extent to which the nature and operations of the US business presents susceptibility to impairment of national security as the regulations provide. Um, you're going to see higher vulnerability perceptions where the U.S. business to be acquired is a TID U.S. business or one that operates in a sensitive sector more generally, or if it has direct contracts with the U.S. government or subcontracts with key U.S. government suppliers. And consequences is really a combination of threat plus vulnerability. So in other words, SIPI is there is focusing on, quote, potential effects on national security that could reasonably result from the exploitation of the U.S. businesses vulnerabilities by the threat actor, meaning the, the foreign acquirer. So in practice, there's really two things to, to focus on here. First is the parties need to make a very candid assessment of how CFIUS is likely to view the threat and the vulnerability vectors in this transaction. Second, in addition to fully understanding the scope of any export control technologies or U.S. government contracts, as an example, this really requires us to think more holistically about how the transaction may cut across current U.S. government policy concerns and related national security trends. So last year, for example, the president issued an executive order that directed CFIUS to focus or maybe redouble its focus on various factors, including a given transaction's effect on critical U.S. supply chains. U.S. technological leadership in critical or sensitive areas relevant to national security, cybersecurity risks, sensitive data, and also relevant industry investment trends that, when they're viewed at a macro level, indicate potential consequences to U.S. national security. So think of multiple transactions in a single sector or related sectors. Thanks, Joe. And moving on to talk a bit more about remedies, what sort of remedies are imposed to address national security concerns where those are identified in relation to a particular transaction? Um, and, and do you find that concerns can usually be dealt with via conditions or do you sometimes see outright prohibitions? When CFIUS clears a transaction, it 
generally advises the parties that um, it has undertaken the review and there are no, quote, unresolved national security concerns. Now, in some cases, CFIUS will insist that the parties agree to certain specified undertakings, we call them mitigation or mitigation remedies, as a condition to clear the transaction, given the CFIUS view that the risk profile uh, requires such conditions. There are a host of potential remedies CFIUS can put in place. They're, they're very much transaction specific. They're often um, affected through what we call a national security agreement or NSA, which is really a contract between the U.S. government and the and the deal parties. Now, all that being said, mitigation often focuses on access with uh, key provisions often looking at prohibiting or limiting transfer or sharing of IP, trade secrets, or critical technologies, uh, ensuring that only authorized persons, oftentimes U.S. persons, have access to certain technology systems, facilities, or sensitive data, um, and assurances of, for example, continuity of supply to the U.S. government um, for, for defined periods with respect to certain government contracts or um, notifying the U.S. government prior to taking certain business decisions or reserving of certain rights to the U.S. government in the event that a party decides to exit a business line. But at the end of the day, where CFIUS does not believe that mitigation remedies are sufficient to address its concerns, or else the parties aren't willing to agree to the mitigation that CFIUS is requiring, CFIUS may insist that the U.S. business be carved out of the deal or else require divestiture by the foreign acquirer of all or part of the U.S. business uh, if we're in a uh, post-closing scenario. And, and again, from an M&A perspective, the, the potential for these mitigation remedies being imposed does need to be addressed in the SPA, which is going to be signed usually before that um, process with CFIUS. Um, so, for example, a, a remedy ring fencing, uh, the U.S. operations and limiting access from non-U.S. nationals may may ultimately really impact the heart of the deal if you're wanting to integrate globally what you've just bought. So just as with merger control conditions, you'll see in SPAs not just cooperation obligations, but definitions of what may be reasonable mitigation remedies the parties will accept, and even hell or high water clauses, you know, forcing the buyer to accept whatever conditions CFIUS may impose, no matter what. And um, so that's the kind of wording you'll see which addresses these uh, remedies in the SPA. Thanks, James. Some really interesting points there. You've both already highlighted a number of useful practical tips for investors um, who are seeking to navigate the CFIUS regime. But are there any other practical points you'd like to draw out? Um, I'm conscious that one point we haven't picked up on yet is the extent to which informal guidance is available prior to filing. Could you perhaps say a few words about that under the CFIUS regime? Absolutely. It certainly is possible to engage with CFIUS prior to filing a transaction, and CFIUS will entertain discussions and meetings with respect to a particular transaction before any filing is made or during the draft filing process. And these meetings uh, and presentations are sometimes a good way to alert CFIUS to the deal and its parameters and essentially socialize the, the key issues with the committee. But CFIUS is on record that it does not issue advisory opinions 
as to whether a transaction is within its jurisdiction or whether it raises national security concerns. So CFIUS is never going to tell you no need to file, but I think um, where your assessment indicates that a filing uh, will be made either as a mandatory or as a voluntary submission, it can be helpful sometimes to have some advanced engagement with CFIUS and perhaps you'll be able to ascertain what are some of the key issues that CFIUS will be concerned about and address those affirmatively in your filing uh, at the outset rather than waiting for CFIUS to raise them. That's really helpful. Thank you. And just finally, I'm sure many listeners will be aware that a new outbound investment program is on the horizon in the US, which has been highly anticipated and in respect of which a presidential executive order was issued just last month in August 2023. Could you explain where things have got to on that front and also flag any other anticipated future regulations which investors should have on their radar? Thanks, Ruth. The outbound investment prohibition and notification program that arises out of the presidential executive order you've referenced. At at present, it's effectively limited to U.S. investment in Chinese entities that are engaged in three areas that the order deems vital to U.S. national security. And those are semiconductors and microelectronics, quantum information technologies, and finally, artificial intelligence. Now, it's important to note that the order itself doesn't currently impose any outbound restrictions at all. Instead, it directs the Treasury Department to issue regulations that would establish an outbound investment program and essentially create two classes of notifiable as well as prohibited transactions. Essentially, it will require U.S. persons to provide notification of certain transactions involving covered foreign persons that may contribute to a threat to U.S. national security, the so-called notifiable transactions, and also prohibit U.S. persons from engaging directly or indirectly in a narrower set of transactions involving covered foreign persons that are determined to pose a particularly acute national security threat, and this is due to their potential to advance military or intelligence or surveillance or cyber capabilities of countries of concern. These are the prohibited transactions. Um, It's not expected to have retroactive application, according to some initial statements made by the Treasury Department. The Treasury Department has opened up a public consultation on the scope and the contours of the program, with that set to close on September 28th. So the executive order and the Treasury consultation is essentially an opening round of a longer regulatory or in U.S. terms, a longer rulemaking process. The regulations will probably take effect within a year, but at present, we don't know what the regulations will look like when finalized. Again, while not expected to have retroactive applications, investors may want to start looking at their investment portfolios to see if they have investments that might be impacted and also how the executive order or the regulations may impact longer-term investment strategies. Now, you'd also asked about uh, expected future regulations. And at a recent conference, Treasury Department officials uh, stated that over the course of the next year or so, uh, CFIUS can be expected to issue several proposed what they called updates to CFIUS regulations, 
some of these seem like they're going to impact and streamline CFIUS case processing and reviews, which will impact those of us who practice before the committee. Uh, other measures are expected to address the CFIUS penalty and enforcement authorities and CFIUS authority with respect to transactions that are not notified to CFIUS. Ultimately, CFIUS is continually looking to balance the need for an open investment climate, which the Treasury Secretary recently noted was crucial to the U.S. economy with the need to protect U.S. national security as well as the security of U.S. allies and partners. Thanks, Joe, and thanks also to you, James, for what has been a really interesting discussion. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today, but thanks to our listeners for joining us. And please do let us know if you have any feedback on this episode or indeed any suggestions for areas to cover in future episodes of FDI Friday. This week, I've also been talking to Matt Fitzgerald and Veronica Roberts about the FERB regime in Australia. And that episode is now also live on our website alongside this one. Looking ahead to next Friday, we'll be hearing from our experts in France and then also from experts in Germany. And we do hope you can join us then.